Welcome to Best Served, a podcast recognizing unsung hospitality heroes. Join Chef Jensen Cummings as he chops it up with industry leaders about the humans who've impacted their lives and careers. From childhood guides, to ass-kicking mentors, to the team members in the trenches that make it all happen. Help us celebrate these rock stars by sharing our show and nominating your own unsung hospitality heroes. Connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Now here is your host. What's up, podcast? It's Corey from Best Served. Today's episode is a clubhouse chat on cultural food, appropriation versus appreciation. Enjoy. All right, I'm just going to go right to left. So Katie, Katie Fisco, I'm going to come to you here, right? Uh, You have an amazing story, your background uh, and your Filipino heritage down there in Colorado Springs. So I'm glad to see you. I'm going to jump in here, Katie. I'd love to hear from you, your thoughts on the uh, topic as a whole. Please do introduce yourself quick, just kind of uh, uh, the the nickel tour so people kind of know who they're uh, listening to. Yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Katie Fisco. I'm Filipina American, Filipina X more accurately these days. Um, in Colorado Springs, I'm looking to launch kind of a, a core style upscale Filipino dining experience in the, in the spring soon within the next couple of years. Um, and so in regards to, to appreciation and appropriation, um, you know, this is definitely something that I personally wrestle with because I'm half Filipina, half Irish American. And so this comes into my world almost every day. You know, what is Americanized Filipino, (laughs) which is a hard thing to wrestle with because America has a huge influence on Filipino cuisine. Um, Number one, spam. Uh, (laughs) That was definitely dropped on us. Um, And so I think for me, what comes to mind is I can only speak from the only knowledge and uh, experience that I have. And so the Philippines has so many influences from different colonizers and people who had occupied and shared culture um, from Japan to China to Spain um, and then America as well. And there's lots of Malay influence and some other religious influences as well from Muslim groups in the Southern part of the Philippines. So I think Um, For me, the biggest tool that I can use to make sure I'm not bastardizing anything or offending anyone is doing the homework and doing the research. Um, Because where I'm, where my family's from in the Philippines is not the same from, um, you know, where my husband's family is from the Philippines. We're from Nueva Sia, which is closer to, you know, inland Manila, and his family is Iba Zambales, it's a fisherman town. So already there's going to be differences in ingredients and availability of different ingredients um, and just the way that we prepare things. So if he eats uh, mongo green beans and with fish sauce and chicharrones and like little dried shrimps in it, that's not wrong, but I grew up eating um, mung bean with uh, sweetened milk as breakfast. So it's not necessarily wrong and different, but I think definitely um, it, you, you just have to do the education. You can't just, like you said, throw something out to sell money and make money off of it because then you're just, you have dollar signs for eyeballs and, and you're not really caring about where it comes from, the history and the people um, that built it up to where, before it got to, to your hands and to your plate. Katie, I really appreciate that. One follow-up I wanted to ask you, do the two of you kind of fight over within your Filipino X culture, which of you has the proper serving for X, Y, and Z dish? Because I'm sure that gets a little bit 
uh, regional as well? Is there a little competition there? All the time. We cannot cook together. <laughs> it doesn't happen. Um, so that's the the hard part is I, you know, I tried to kind of put my my little culinary touch on it. And then he's like, well, coconut milk doesn't go with this traditionally. And I'm like, yes, it does. I, I did study the Bicol region. And so, you know, we go back and forth because of his mindset is so much in how he grew up and what he ate that he has no experience outside of. So sometimes I'm introducing him to things and he's introducing me to things, but definitely there's always uh, shots fired in our kitchen. I hear you there. I, I appreciate there's a little bit of uh, banter and competition there. And also it just shows that the open-mindedness has to be across the board because even within a culture, there's going to be factions. And we always see that anywhere we find a way to divide ourselves, especially when it comes to food, it just, it just doesn't taste as good. So appreciate that. All right, LeBanks, I want to come to you. Same thing, quick little intro so we know who you're listening to and then kind of give us your thoughts, your experience. Absolutely. How's it going, everyone? I'm L. Banks, the bossy. I'm the head chef and owner of Bitches Love to Eat, where we actually specialize in Haitian cuisine. My family is from Haiti. So, yeah, this topic comes around a lot, a lot, a lot, especially most recently. Um, bon Appetit fucked up a recipe again, and it was a uh, Haitian uh, freedom soup. And it just was so bad that they had to protest the actual magazine that's so much so that they took the name down and changed it to a, like a pumpkin soup or something like that. So I want to pretty much agree with what Katie said. It's really the education part. I feel like people are free to, especially as chefs, I don't think there should be a cap to what you're able to do. Even for me, I love making a lot of fusion dishes, but when you go into territories where you're not familiar, just, just, it's okay to learn. It's okay to learn. It's okay to be educated and also understand what you're doing it, what you're doing and why you're doing it. I feel like a lot of people do not take the time to really um, show the respect that a lot of dishes need. And, and it shows and it shows. So that's my take on the topic. But this is something we talk about all the time, all the time. I know, Banks, specifically that recipe, I'd love to learn from that because we see a lot sure. of recipes getting published and then not having the context to understand if that is actually guiding our understanding of a cultural food. So right. take that micro thing. Tell us about that recipe super quick, just so we get a little more context. Sure. Um, so um, soup, the Haitian pumpkin soup is actually called soup jumu. And hold on one sec. Give me one second. Let me get into a quieter room. All right. So soup jumu is actually the soup that we drink as Haitians during Haitian Independence Day, which is January 1st. So a little. I think we lost you for there. Uh, lost you for a second there. We'll bring you there. Otherwise, we'll come back to you. Where we won. And. I'm sorry. And the first thing um, that we decided, like, OK, this is what we're going to celebrate with is to drink that soup that we were told that we couldn't have as slaves. So that's pretty much what the soup, the quick, quick, quick nutshell. And it's something that's very important to Haitian people. It's almost like an offering to our ancestors. So when Marcus Samuelson took it upon himself to 
put his twist or his version of the soup, it really made a lot of people mad because there was a lot of reasons why certain ingredients was in that soup, like the root vegetables, et cetera, et cetera. He decided to put honey and nuts, which had nothing to do with the integrity of the soup. So that was one, again, of many recipes Bon Appetit has fucked up. Yeah, I feel you there. I appreciate that. And Keith, we're coming to you in a second here. I think what's what's really important about this for us to understand is the context of time. We're such in a, in a micro bubble of what we understand in the short term. And when I was thinking about what happened with Stephanie Izzard or this specific uh, instance, it's understanding like the roots and the migration of these dishes, because you think about Korean food, you think so much about um, about chili and spicy foods. Yet those ingredients didn't come to Korea to the uh, uh, peninsula there until the Portuguese brought it. So depending on where and how you're contextualizing time within its relevance for a culture is fundamentally important. So a dish that has a moment in time that it's capturing, understanding that moment right. and its significance is so important because all food is fusion. There is no food that is not fusion that happened in a vacuum. So I think and I appreciate you kind of pointing that out. So thank you for that, L. Banks. Keith. Absolutely. Um, also, super quick, Al Alyssa, um, could you check your DMs, please? Oh, yeah, sure. All right, cool. <laughs> All right, Keith, want to come to you uh, again, quick introduction so we know who we're listening to and then give us your thoughts, kind of your personal journey within the uh, context we're talking about here. Sure thing. Uh, well, thank you, Jensen. As always, it's uh, great being in a room with you. Uh, hello to all my friends, old and new. Um, so my name is Chef Keith. Uh, for the last coming up to decade of my life, I have worked intensively on uh, understanding history and culture and food of uh, the Indian uh, and South Asian diaspora. Um, I spend a tremendous amount of time trying to recreate state dishes rather than taking Indian food as a whole. A lot of people here might think Indian food is non garlic naan and butter chicken. Uh, so much more. And um, I tried to explain that on my Instagram, which you guys are welcome to check out as well. Uh, authored three books uh, to try to get into this subject specifically. It's rooted in xenophobia, to be very, very honest. Um, uh, immigration is kind of as American as McDonald's. And, you know, yet in America, we have such a dark history of culinary gentrification. Um, we elevated certain dishes based on how socially acceptable we believe a particular culture is. And this is why uh, you can see the, the repression of F quote unquote ethnic cuisine as people like to define um, that dates back centuries and even in America today we're looking at over 40,000 American Chinese restaurants and 50,000 you know Mexican restaurants um, but yet you look at Indian food you look at some of these other cuisines uh, Thai is another one and they have around 6,000 or so at most. And a lot of that has to do with culinary gentrification. Um, and so I try to spend a lot of my time really talking about the history of a dish, um, promoting uh, chefs, um, since I, I deal primarily with Indian food, promoting Indian chefs, the people that I think are doing really great things, and also making sure that I take time and being humble with that. Because if we don't do that, then we are appropriating rather than appreciating. Uh, thanks, and I'm done speaking. Yeah, Keith, I do want to come back to you because you mentioned something there at the end that I think is very, very important and a little bit of a struggle right now of understanding how there's also a, a layer of this where sometimes there's there's a newfound quote unquote mainstream appreciation that becomes adopted adopted and then it becomes this hype monster of new ethnic cuisine again big old quotes the air quotes there. And then it's only allowed adoption in the mainstream culture because a white chef said that it was good. And I know that, oh, something that 
that that stays on your mind for sure. And uh, how how do you grapple with that as somebody who's dedicated themselves to it and creating the space and the opportunity for more voices and more culturally relevant food to be shared and have to navigate your own personal position within that? Um, well, thanks for the question. My simple response is fuck that. Um, yep. flat out, right? <laughs> like, um, I, I'm very tired of the voices being very stereotypical with that. There's incredible cuisines. And if you look back in history, there's nothing new, right? And for instance, in the 1880s until about 1920, social workers and nutrition nutritionists uh, basically said Italian food's too garlicky and spicy. And, you know, it'll never catch on. And now you look at where it is now. The problem is, is we need to amplify the voices and the cuisines that we believe in, the history that we believe in, and the people that we believe in, or we're going to be in the same kind of patriarchy that we have. And so I'm encouraged that all of you guys today who are listening to this, go share some stories of people and cultures and cuisines that you love that need their voices amplified. I'm done speaking. Thank you so much, Keith. Uh, Jensen, real quick, also just uh, check your messages if you have a second. I'm on it. All right, Jen, want to come uh, to you next? Same thing. Give us a quick introduction and uh, and then kind of tell us your thoughts, your journey. Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Jen. I am a I own a Korean restaurant uh, in in Philadelphia in um, Center City, and uh, I <laughs> I know that anyone who's been following the food scene knows that there's been a lot of Korean related news especially in regards to appropriation, I think all over the country. Um, and uh, it's been something I that I have been working on and thinking about a lot over the last couple months, um, especially with my dad last night, where, where do you draw that line of someone who is appreciating the culture and someone who is showing respect for the culture versus using it as a token to make an extra buck? Um, and, you know, how do you draw that line? Because there's a lot of appropriation of Korean food in, in the city, uh, more so than you would think. Um, and, you know, anyone who has heard of Shake Shack will know what's going on there right now. Um, and I'm actually really interested to see what everyone's, uh, what everyone's take is on sort of the idea between uh, appropriation versus appreciation. Um, I, for one, am, I don't know if frustrated is the right word, but as someone who has grown up with grandparents who, you know, lived under Japanese colonization and who has spent a lot of time talking about that with, with sort of my extended family, it's interesting to see sort of people um, try and mesh all of the Asian cultures together without understanding the history behind it. Um, and to see the way all of those things are interwoven and sort of the utter lack of respect that is shown. And I think it would have been acceptable to do something, things like that maybe 20, 30 years ago, but you know, we are now in a global age where that kind of uh, approach to food is no longer acceptable. Um, so yeah, I'm actually really excited for, for today's conversation. Yeah, Jen, I wanna, a quick follow-up and then actually I wanna skip, sorry, Sophie, I'll come to you right after with Judy, also a, a chef in Philadelphia uh, thinking about the same thing, so I'm interested in maybe st staying in Philadelphia for a moment. Sophia is in Philadelphia too, Jensen. Oh, we got a, a strong Philadelphia connection today. All right, well then we'll go back to back to back of Philadelphia because uh, let, let's let's dissect the city a little bit, maybe as a, a little bit of a case study. So, 
Jen, for you, you mentioned just the mashup of Asian culture, something that I've dealt with being Hapa. I'm like not white enough. I'm not Japanese enough. If I'm Japanese, am I allowed to speak on, on other parts of Asia? What does that look like and feel like? So for you, how's that playing out then specifically in Philadelphia, this kind of mashup expectation of, of an Asian is an Asian? Sorry, Jen, that was for you to just, just follow up on that and then we'll go to Sophia and Judy. No, lost Jen. All right, Sophia, then I'll come to you. Also Philly, uh, uh, for you, kind of give us, give us uh, what's happening in Philly right now, specifically this topic and, and quick introduction as well, please. Sure. So yeah, Sophia Leon, I own a Central American restaurant in Center City, Philadelphia. And I'm kind of on the same boat as Jen, I would say, so except on the Latin American side. So I feel like a lot of people, you know, mesh Latin American cuisines and they all expect it to be one. So oftentimes, you know, I have a hard time differentiating Guatemalan food, right? Like what is Guatemalan and how is it different from Mexican? But, and I've had since I've been open, I've been trying to introduce a pupusa, right? Like, what is a pupusa? It's a stuffed corn tortilla. But then lately, or especially last year, I, I, I started seeing it in other restaurants, right? Like in higher-end restaurants where I would normally charge $7 for two pupusas and I was seeing it for $28. And, you know, I've been spending all of this time like trying to introduce it and educate the customer what it is. But then I see it somewhere else and it's $28 and like, is that appreciating the food or is that appropriating it and charging it, you know, times four, like what I would charge, you know, like how, how am I supposed to feel like that? And how do we, do I feel better that like more people are putting it under menus or do I feel like, okay, I did all this work to try to introduce a food and then now it is getting another menus, but it is getting charged like so much more. And Sophia, big question here, the $7 outside of somebody else charging whatever they're charging, that's a whole different conversation. For you though, personally, $7, I'm fascinated this number because I think especially with cultural food that's new, mm -hmm. that hasn't been adopted yet, sometimes we, and look, as an industry as a whole, we undervalue ourselves at every turn. Yes. It's part of our character, strength and weakness, fundamentally. So the $7, like, do you feel like it puts you in a position where you have to bleed from the eyeballs just to make a buck somebody else is making more dollars on something that they have not bled for like you have but seven dollars why why isn't it twelve dollars 100 yeah i and and this is you know this is the problem with with street food right then latin american street food and sometimes also asian street food right like they expect it to be cheap like people associate these kinds of food of food as being cheaper than you know an uh, italian food or french food right even though it is just as time consuming and just as hard to make if not more um it's just it's the i guess it, it's it's what you think of it and how you grew up seeing it and even if i get people from guatemala and from latin america like they expect it to be this much because it in guatemala it was you know, 20 quetzales, for example. But yes, I, I believe it is undervalued and I believe that this should change. Yeah, I appreciate that. We we need to start charging more for the food 
for the work that goes into it and the story that it tells absolutely to celebrate the worth and work is absolutely important. Judy, I want to uh, come to you real quick and then Kim Lai, uh, you next. Judy, also being in Philadelphia, I'm interested. It seems like, uh, you know, we have a few of you in Philadelphia and it's top of mind. Maybe, you know, introduce yourself and lay down a little bit what's happening in the city as a whole and then specifically your experience of it. Hey everyone, my name's Judy. I own a Taiwanese shop here in Philadelphia. Um, I am first generation born here, born on the 4th of July for everyone who always questions whether or not I'm really American enough, um, which is always a fun thing and get complimented on my English on a regular basis. Um, I think I perfected my Jersey girl, Valley girl accent, so it's always confusing to me when people question me on that. Um, I struggle with this issue a lot. Um, I think people in their minds have a very set idea of what Asia is and what Asian food is. And like Jen was saying, they kind of just throw us all together. And I'm, my family's from a little island that has been occupied and I say visited by quite a few different parties and our food reflects that. In addition to the fact that in the past 40 to 50 years, the development of our little island has been phenomenal. For everyone who's looking for, wondering why are your F-150s and cars can't be built fast enough, it's because Taiwan can't keep up with the semiconductor production that y'all want. Um, but our food is a reflection of the changing palate of our people. Like I, you know, I had a farmer speak to me recently who complimented me on the fact that he compared me to another restaurant, which I can't stand here, that makes Asian-ish food. Um, and he's like, oh, I love that you've Americanized it. And I looked at him and I said, what do you mean? And he said to me, well, you've, you, you, know, you, you do lo- local sourcing. And I said, yes. And he's like, well, that's a very American concept. I said, I'm pretty sure every culture only bought from where they had food because it's not like there were trucks driving things around, you know, hundreds of years ago. And so we kind of made do and made food from what we had available. So if anything, this is just a return to what we know to be better practices for our cultures and our communities. So um, when it comes to pricing, that's always a problem because not only am I a person of color, but I'm also a woman-owned business. And those two things, plus um, the value that people seem to only want to place on those types of foods is kind of alarming. For example, you know, you'll go to a fancy schmancy restaurant that has like a fancy schmancy owner on it and they can charge, let's say, let's just make the equivalence of like dumplings and uh, raviolis. People will char- like make spend thirty dollars on something like if that has an egg in it. I'll make pot stickers from scratch from local sourced ingredients, and everyone's like, "Well, these are great, but they're kind of expensive for Asian food." And I don't quite understand that. And I use well when we were open to the public, I would use the opportunity to talk to our guests and ask them and challenge that and say, "Why do you think it should be cheaper?" And you know, there is a common misperception that we have to fight with media as well, where we talk about, you know they will inadvertently have their bias to show and basically refer to pricing about a lot of local immigrant uh, BIPOC-owned businesses. And they don't do that when it comes to white-owned businesses or white cuisines. And it's I don't think they even intentionally realize they're doing it, but it happens a lot. And that places a little bit more pressure, if not a lot more pressure, on our cuisines because we have to not only be delicious, but we have to somehow meet some sort of artificial value guideline that is not placed upon other cultures. And I'll just stop talking because I can do this forever. On this. Judy, I really appreciate it. You got me out of my fucking chair and walking, pacing around the room because the dumpling ravioli 
debate is one that makes me want to gouge my eyes out. So I appreciate you you highlighting that. I know several people in the room that are dealing with that exact same fundamental struggle with their own businesses. So I appreciate you pointing that out. And I think we'll hear that echoed a couple more times. All right, Kimla, I want to come to you, Kimla Yingling. Uh, appreciate you being in the room. Same thing, quick introduction, and then let us know kind of uh, your thoughts on the topic. Hi, everybody. Um, Kim Lai here. I'm a culinary producer over here in Los Angeles. Um, cheers to everybody that owns restaurants. I mean, that's so, so much hard work, especially now with everything going on. Um, I write and create and host food content. So, um, and also just currently pursuing some more entrepreneurial ventures within the culinary space. Um, I think this topic is extremely interesting. You know, a lot of people are super ignorant about different cuisines um, other than their own. And while I know that ignorance can be super infuriating, um, I like to try and think that these are opportunities for me when it happens to just educate people about what it is they don't know, because they don't know what they don't know. Um, and a lot of times what they do know are things that other people are showing them. And there's just not the interest, or maybe they just don't know that they need to actually research something a little more. Um, you know, I shot a pilot a few, two weeks ago with this production company, and we're featuring a lot of different cuisines. And the first one actually was, it was an Indian cuisine. And it was very, very important. They know my background. I'm Vietnamese American. They know my background and how a lot of times with a lot of the videos and the content that I produce, I'm trying to showcase people what it is they don't know and get them interested in an ingredient maybe they haven't heard of. I'm gonna come back real quick to the uh, cuisine, the Indian cuisine, but just like this morning, I posted a recipe um, for you guys, it's Chinese New Year still, uh, Lunar New Year. And so this morning um, I'm working with the company and making um, some a, a long a Chinese long bean recipe, and I actually had someone email me right after I posted the recipe and was like, "Oh, I have um, I have all of the ingredients that you showed, which is great. It's there are a lot of Asian sauces." And she goes, "But I don't have the beans, so I'm thinking I'll just go get some American beans." And it's like, "Nope, it, it's very important. It's like Chinese long beans have a different flavor, so I highly recommend." that you go to an Asian market today and go grab the right beans so that you know what the dish is actually supposed to taste like. And then if you have trouble later on finding that top, you know, those types of beans, then you can obviously use green beans, substitute out whatever you want. But at least for the first time, if you're going to try this recipe, use the absolute correct ingredients. And then going back to the pilot, it was so important to show appreciation for the dish. So uh, there was absolutely no substituting. And I had four different showrunners go to four different stores just to find the fenugreek powder and the garam masala and the right Indian cheese. It's like, wow. Um, but it was just, it's so important to use those specific ingredients because especially when you're trying to showcase a dish to people, you want them to have all the tools from the very beginning. And, you know, it's like, I had people ask, oh, what's fenugreek? Like, you know, what is that? And what's garam masala? Is that just like curry powder? And so for me, this is opportunities for me to explain to them what 
the ingredients are and why they should use them. You know what I mean? So that's my take on this uh, appreciation versus appropriation today. <laughs> Kim, I appreciate that. I especially appreciate the educational piece. I think I mentioned us being pure communicators. We're also just educators. It's just, we have been inspired and we want to inspire others. And so much of it is just about sharing, whatever that sharing is, that personal journey. So I, I appreciate that for sure. All right, I wanna keep rolling. Got quite a few other people I wanna to get to. Oh, and, and Kim Lai, Doris is, is in here as well. I don't even see that, but Chinese New Year's, when we talked to Doris, we talked about the red envelopes, they pulled the trigger on it. So I'm excited about that. And hopefully we can get all the way and talk to Doris about that. But oh, that's uh, awesome. Super cool things happening when we communicate with each other, when we connect over food. So uh, Tatiana, I want to come over to you. Tell us uh, just about yourself a little bit and then your thoughts on the topic. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Um, um, my name is Tatiana. I live in the I live in Maryland um, and um, I am a food blogger, food photographer, and um, I'm also starting up a, a flavored a syrup company inspired by African recipes. And this topic is dear to me <laughs> just because of my own history um, and just the way I grew up. So just to give you some context, I left um, my native country of Cameroon at nine and we've been country hopping ever since with my parents. That is from, from Spain, Italy, you know, Portugal and Great Britain. Then we landed in France where I actually got a more stable upbringing. So that alone would tell you the influence that food has had in my life. And then I come from a family of restaurant uh, restaurant owners from my grandparents and now my mom. Um, so food is very important for me. But unfortunately, being raised in Europe, while I absorb all the, all the food cultures, I quickly noticed, especially in my teenage years, that um, my food from my own country was shone upon. And when it was showcased, it was, there was never, you know, no credit. Um, it was just, it was showed in passing because, you know, we've got to talk about the continent of Africa. Again, we don't talk about the countries, about talk about, as a continent um, where foods are different. You know, you, whether you're from Nigeria or wherever, the food is always different. Um, so fast forward, in this era where we are bringing this conversation forward, I just find it still very superficial, right? And I even got really angry lately, and that's um, uh, after a French um, journal um, showcased this young French man who is selling baobab juice, and and they they wrote it as to to something to the effect that he discovered it and it got me pissed. I was like, we've been drinking baobab juice in Africa and most African countries for centuries and years. And then you have this young 20 something who decides he's gonna sell baobab juice and then they put him at the forefront and then say, oh, he discovered it. I'm like, you cannot use the word discover. And so that prompted me to think of, you know, why is that? And we live in a very Western centric environment where their authority is made by only Western people. And if you want um, your food, your skill set to be validated, it has to be through a Western person. Um, and, and that has to change because they don't know everything. Um, they don't experience things the same way um, like the natives do. Um, so I decided to get into the fight and that's why I started the Simple Syrups as well, because I found the, um, that we had an issue in, 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 
in all aspects, right? And so for me, I would love more than just appreciation, appropriation, I would, I would love representation because one of the ways you curve that issue that we've, we've seen if, is if what is in the media or um, in our own lives, if there's more representation. And so I make an effort, even my personal life, to cook foods from different countries and enrich myself and um, educate myself on that top, on, those, on, on the foods that I eat, because then it, it enables me to appreciate a different culture, enables me to appreciate the food, it enables me to open my palate to different ingredients and also use that as a way to influence my own cooking as well, because you discover new ingredients, you discover new spices, you discover a lot more when you, um, you know, cross that frontier and seek out different way of eating. So I think part of the issue is that there's a lack of representation. We cannot always rely on the people, um, you know, out there to, to speak for our culture and our foods. So yeah, I'm, I'm gonna stop talking there and give the room to others. Thank you so much, Stephanie. I appreciate representation becoming an important part. And I think the thoughtfulness in which we put ourselves in a position to be allies for other cultures is fundamentally important as well. And I think Keith mentioned it early on the onset, like you got to put in the work, you got to, you know, you're not going to struggle as the people have, but you got to put in some of that struggle to be able to get to the point where you are somebody who is an ally in fact. So I appreciate that. All right, Helen, come to you next and introduce yourself and then tell us, uh, tell us what you're thinking. Thank you. Um, I'm Helen. I am from Minneapolis, Minnesota, where I um, own and operate a food service business, um, really focusing on sustainability and regenerative uh, clean cooking practices. Um, I resonated a lot. I think you, I think it was you, Jensen, who um, called yourself a hapa. Um, you know, a lot of times when people look at me, they can very clearly tell that I am um, of African descent, but everything else is, um, as a kid, people would be like, let's, sorry, I have a kid as well. Um, people would always kind of play a game like, let's guess what Helen is, because, you know, my name is Helen, but my last name is Pong or Pang, and um, they would just always guess that I was black and white, but actually I come from a very um, multicultural home, you know, growing up African-American, um, I'm also Chinese, which is where my last name comes from. And then to, to add even more in there, I'm Native Choctaw Native American, and then also um, I'm Jewish. So um, as a kid, people kind of never, they'd always, you know, it felt like I wasn't black enough for the black kids. I wasn't Jewish enough for the Jewish kids and everything in between. Um, so that's a big reason why I feel like I um, ended up in food because food has always been um, a way where I can incorporate, you know, different pieces of my own cultural identity. But um, for myself, just be having a, quite a diverse background, I've always felt pretty comfortable, you know, whether it was doing Eastern European Jewish cuisine or, do, or doing like more, um, soul food or even different, you know, Chinese recipes and Native American recipes. Like I've always felt pretty comfortable doing it. 
having a diverse background, but I think even just from this conversation, um, I can't remember who it was, but they were talking about um, where they're from and their husband and being from the same country, I think it was the Philippines, but being from two completely different areas and how that food really um, is different from two different areas. And that's obviously um, true everywhere. So that um, I'm always trying to educate myself, um, but I think it is hard just in general in the industry where, you know, you can come up with your own ideas or, you know, we're reinventing the wheel every single time, but come up with new ways to do stuff. And uh, I think it was Sophia talking about selling her pupusas for $7 and then uh, another restaurant coming in and selling them for 28 and being able to have nobody question them. But when they go to her restaurant, um, expecting that that's the price. Um, so I think just trying to figure out and, you know, never want, I don't ever want to feel like I have um, appropriated somebody else's culture when it comes to food and trying to educate myself. Um, there was one other point I wanted to mention before passing it along. Uh, I think so. it was Sophia talking about the pupusas. I watched a video today and I think this does help people. Um, sometimes, especially, there are a lot of very, in, in a lot of our cuisines, very labor intensive um, foods that get overlooked. And, you know, this was a French cuisine video, which I feel like people tend to quote unquote appreciate more because it's viewed as being elevated cuisine. But it was a video just really detailing, like a quick reel, detailing the work that goes into making a croissant. And um, I think like if with your pupusas, for instance, or with, you know, there's so many different foods, even just taking like clips of the work that goes into that and somehow translating that into a video or into a post so that when people either visit your restaurants or reach out regarding your business, they see all of the work that goes into stuff. Um, that's definitely an approach I take just because um, pretty much all of the stuff that I'm putting out for my clients is made from scratch. And, um, you know, from the cheeses to the pastas and everything in between. And I, I know that my clients have communicated how much value they see in that, whether it's something from scratch or not, but just showing those steps because a lot of people don't know, you know, they don't know that you have to laminate dough. They don't know any of the steps that go into it. And so they just expect that if I can get pupusas for $4 here and $28 here, that they're going to be able to find somewhere in the middle. So I think it is important as um, there's more awareness into, um, into all the different cuisines that exist to educate people on, you know, that this wasn't just a five minute throw together and I'm throwing a $10 price mark on it. Like really letting people understand what goes into what we're making. I really appreciate that. I love that you were very personal. And then also, you know, we weren't going to go too heavy into marketing, but fuck yeah. Everyone needs to be on Instagram, on TikTok, omnipresent everywhere, sharing story, story, story. It's what drives everything. We are, again, just story is how we define our existence as, as human beings, let alone as, as culinary professionals. So I really appreciate hearing that. You need to be out there sharing that story. People need to know the struggle and joy. They just do. People buy why you do what you do. 
not what you do. Simon Sinek talks about that a lot. And I could not think of an industry where that is more important than in food, beverage, hospitality. Why we do what we do is so much more important. The food is just the proof that this is who we are and this is why we're here. This is the purpose that we serve. This is the sense of belonging we're trying to create. So thank you, Helen. I appreciate that. You got me fired up. All right, Rebecca, I want to come to you. Give us a quick intro and then uh, thoughts. Hi, thanks for having us and thanks for hosting this room. I'm Rebecca. Um, I own Taking the Wheel Consulting. Um, I do consulting and um, leadership and team development coaching for the food and beverage industry. Um, but before I, I started my business, I spent 20 years um, as a chef in the industry. And 10 of those years, I was the executive chef of a catering company in um, Phoenix, Arizona. And one of the things that the salespeople loved to do was try to sell anything to anyone <laughs> all the time. Um, and we would have, you know, because we were a large catering company that could operate at large venues, we could host a lot of people. But the one thing that I, I always had to kind of put my foot down, my, the salespeople hated me, which I don't care. They would come to me and they would say, oh, we have a, um, an Indian bride and they want authentic Indian food. Um, and it's for a thousand people spread over three days. And I would turn back to them and say, absolutely not. I'm not doing that. That's not going to happen because I don't know how to make authentic Indian food. I will not do it justice. So unless grandma wants to come into this kitchen and teach me exactly how, how to make everything that they're expecting at that event, we're not making promises we can't keep. And you know what? A lot of times the grandma would come in or the mom or the dad. And I would have them come in and I would say, show me what you want. And I will learn everything I can possibly do uh, or learn to make this event as special as possible. But just know that, you know, I, I'm doing the best that I can. And, you know, my team's going to do the best that they can. And it's going to be made with love. <laughs> but but it's not going to be exactly um, what 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 you're accustomed to. And I don't want to not give it justice. Um, but it did work a lot of the times, you know, they would come in and, and they would say, this is where I source this. This is how I make this. This is how I create this. And they appreciated that I was so willing to learn and, you know, and, and show appreciation to their own culture. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was, that was just kind of what I wanted to share with you guys. How great. I bet you got to learn a lot of really cool stuff being open like that. Putting your foot down meant that you had an opportunity that a lot of other people don't when they just bend the knee to the sales team and to the mighty dollar. So I appreciate that for sure. Even though, you know, I'm also the contradiction of saying like, we need to focus on the stories and the food is the extension of that. And at the same time, I say, whatever you're charging right now, add 25, 50% to it because it's just not enough. If you're thoughtful and everybody who's here is the thoughtful type of people, you're not charging enough for your food. The end, full stop. And so those contradictions are something that we hold, especially when we care so much and don't want it to be about the dollar. So I appreciate that, Rebecca, for sure. Uh, all right, Judy, we got a good amount from you. Um, wanna then, and apologize if I mispronounce, is it Migi, wanna come to you next? Hi, uh, yeah, you pronounced correct. My name is Migi and I'm based in uh, Bay Area near San Francisco. And uh, my job has been, um, uh, since I come, came to 
United States 16 years ago, my job has been switched from personal chef and uh, fine dining catering, food and wine pairing into sommelier where I write wine lists for Chinese restaurants. Um, and that restaurant that I wrote was for um, Sichuan cuisine, which is a spicy food. And uh, I think for the earlier time of my career in the United States, I was talking about a lot of food culture and I teach, I kind of like educate the Chinese people about Western food because most of people who immigrate to here, they are trying to, you know, try to find their, their family, like uh, their original um, family food and finding all the Asian ingredients in here. But then they, they also struggle on their family being uh, born, the kids born in the United States and they needed to be understanding the food culture of the United States because the, the kids is, a, kids is a, all desire for Western food, but they don't know how to cook Western food. So my big portion about kind of like a, a bridge between Western and, and uh, Eastern uh, food was my um, always doing job. And then the after I write the wine list for American um, well-found, uh, very authentic Sichuan cuisine. And then I find out that on this part, because most of people will come in to Sichuan cuisine and they want to stir, stir fry noodle or they want to stir fry rice, stir fry rice. And they, they didn't know that um, Sichuan cuisine is famous on specific type of food or taste like spicy or Sichuan pepper. And for the wine pairing, it was always hard for a lot of um, American people come in and then thinking that Chinese uh, restaurant has uh, uh, certified sommelier writing the wine specific for uh, Chinese food, especially spicy food. It has to pair with uh, a certain grapes, not varietal, not the Chardonnay, like all the restaurant has on their list. Uh, they need a more kind of like some kind of wine can pair with that. So I think the, uh, I'm very, uh, I'm, I want to echo the uh, Kim Lai, I'm, I'm her fans, that she talked about the food so lively. And uh, she mentioned that, you know, if you want to cook, I always tell my, my student or my audience that if you really want to cook a Western food, you do need to find authentic ingredients so when I, when I host um, uh, Spanish food, I would, I publish a book about food and wine pairing and then at the time, entertaining around the world with me, with Miki. So I actually write about uh, Spanish food and I, I'm a professional friend at the culinary school. So for me, like you do need the um, uh, chorizo made in Spain to get the right taste of the chorizo to make the right payaya. So for me, I think the to extra effort to find the ingredient truly are really to show off the authentic flavor, no matter Western or Asian. But in Clubhouse, since I joined in the early February, then I joined a lot of Chinese people around the world and they come talk about, um, we were talking about what the food we miss the most. And I'm from Taiwan. So they were talking about a lot of local food, family style of uh, Taiwanese cooking, but they are living in um, our uh, middle, uh, like Midwest of uh, United States. It's almost like impossible to find uh, authentic Chinese um, ingredients or Taiwanese ingredients. 
they have a, a big difficult to find the ingredients. So I often, when I was often to ask, you have to use real, you know, ingredient, but, but after a while, I think you have to, unless you are a restaurant owner, of course, you have to find the resource to make the real Chinese food, no matter, you know, Chinese food has a, um, a category. I mean, from the A region where uh, they are all taste different and we should uh, take the responsibility to also express our culture about uh, educate um, our clients that the cuisine's difference, differences in between different cuisine, but also um, it's hard for the regular people or they understand that uh, some of the ingredients is really, really hard to get. Like the Sichuan cuisine restaurant that I, I wrote, um, the wine list, they have, um, they have some of the vegetable you don't even can find in, in the United States, but they find a way to make it into like the only local for Sichuan to find it in here. But for normal people, I think we also put uh, credit, 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 like you want to, judge other people's um, when we want to judge other people's food is not authentic we really have to also think about do they possible to get those ingredients sometimes it's really really hard if you're a restaurant run, run, uh, uh, owner yes you can try because you are going to order a big quantity but for the regular um, people it's harder for them so they are leg of this type of the, the flavor profile they had the experience to really experience the authentic food. So I became compromised about this uh, issue. So now I would like explain, oh, I know it was hard for you to get this, but you can use something to replace, but the, the flavor won't be the, so authentic. You do have to go to maybe uh, after pandemic, visit the country to truly try the food because I all my writing, my, my book, I, I travel around the uh, different country to ride the food and I ride the authentic taste, but uh, just so hard for many people. Even some of the restaurants, they know the Chinese flavor is so fantastic, but you can know they don't, they are lack of some of the really authentic taste. Even the Chinese restaurants in the United States, a lot of them are not professional. They mainly are in the earlier Early time, they were like um, uh, student come here and then they they just, you know, do a Chinese restaurant. They are not really that authentic. Uh, that's what I want to say. I'm done talking. <laughs> Thank you. You took us all over the world. Thanks for that. One of the things that like really got my got my gut wrenched a little bit was when you talked about, you know, the kids wanting the Western food experience. And I know Helen mentioned it and there's several, you know, people who Judy mentioned having the Valley Girl accent and your English is so good. I mean, I remember being embarrassed of the foods I mentioned at the very beginning that my, you know, Obachan from Kyoto, Japan would bring because they smelled funky and fermenty and weird. And, you know, I would like, she would leave some stuff and I would hide those things so that, you know, the, my friends wouldn't see the weird Asian stuff that we had in the refrigerator. And I always wanted to make sure that even though we had a pot of rice at all times and umuboshi and soy sauce, that was like breakfast every day. I would never bring anything Asian to lunch, never bring nori or anything like that. So I think that really, that really hit me and a lot of people that are trying to navigate their own, you know, culture and being American, I think is super important. So I appreciate that for sure. Uh, Yumi, Trey, and want to come to you next and I'm going to introduce you. So this is, 
Uh, huge shout out. Yumi Tran is the owner of Indochine Cuisine in Parker, Colorado, who I think might be my favorite restaurant tour in the entire country. Uh, so you're getting mad props here. So I, I expect high things of you in this conversation now that I, I've thrown the gauntlet down like that. But uh, somebody who just, I think, thinks about the numbers, thinks about the people, thinks about the culture, navigates those things, struggles with those things. So you get you get mad props today, Yumi, for sure. Yumi Tran. But uh, no introduction needed now. What, uh, what do you got for us? What are you thinking? What are you feeling on this topic? Can you hear me? Yes, we hear hey, you. Hey, thank you so much for the prop. I always so afraid because you have set such high expectations. So, <laughs> all right, okay. So let me dive into it to answer your question about appreciation versus appropriation. I think my take is a bit different. I I probably would say that I'm probably the oldest um, person in your panel. So, <laughs> uh, when age, I think comes with wisdom. And I think that uh, being 58 years old, I turned 58 years old yesterday. And, uh, and happy belated I, birthday. Happy belated birthday. Happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. Trust me. You know what? Being an Asian person, oh. I don't want to be reminded how old I get. So <laughs> birthday, I kind of live through the day without thinking until like hundreds and hundreds of messages. I'm like, oh, this is so American. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, but get back to this. I think that, um, uh, like chance to know, I actually own the restaurant by accident. I love to eat food. I travel the world eating food. I'm an I'm Vietnamese, but I love Thai food. So therefore, when I decided, not I decided, when I accidentally opened a restaurant, my food, the first thing I thought of was, I want to do, I want to open a Thai restaurant. I don't like pho, believe it or not. That's like the first time you ever heard, but I didn't like pho so much. And I, because I had a roommate who's a Thai, and um, we were to cook something really quick, you know, college students. So um, I opened a Thai restaurant. And then as I, as I opening it, I, 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 I realized this. Our job, really, my job is in a service industry, is that I welcome my, my, my customers, wherever the background they're from. But my job is to be able to not alienate them, to saying to them, hey, um, you know, you don't really know how to eat Asian food if you don't eat here, there, where, or you don't know how to eat it appropriately, you don't eat with chopsticks. For me, I like for them to enjoy, enjoy my food that I created with as much knowledge as I can from my Thai chef, kind of pass it out to me, but I, of course I'm not Thai. I definitely don't know the ins and outs of, you know, of all the Thai ingredients and how you cook things. I don't even know that in Vietnamese, let alone Thai. So. But I do know that I do appreciate the culture. I do know that I have to respect the ingredient that I use for a certain dishes. Like I would not gonna substitute, you know, cafe lime leaves with like lemon peel, for example. I know enough of that because it tastes different. And not because I'm disrespecting the culture. I just know the taste will be different. However, when I cook my food, I practically call them Indochine food. I don't claim it to be a, you know, Bangkok this or Phuket that or Saigon this or anything like that. I said, I cook my food out of love, out of what I feel that would be great tasting for you with the hope that when you eat my food, you enjoy it. And you know that that's a flavor from Vietnam that someday Vietnam would be a destination for you to come to that you would like to learn more about my people, you know, mm. and about my history. Um, I, you know, I get emotional, but anyway. 
So, so for me, it's not so much an appropriation uh, when I try to, um, let's say, cook sushi. Because we do have a little sushi station. I always say to people, I don't have sushi chef, I have sushi technician, meaning we know how to do the rolls. But you ask me, like, the history of why fish have to cut certain way, I would tell you, ooh, those are beyond my pay grade. I just know that I can execute the role correctly based on what I created it. And I never claim anything to be authentic because for me, inclusion, meaning you have got to make things accessible and that including taste. So if they taste something that may be halfway Thai, but just so that they're aware that that is a Thai food, someday they might want to decide to go to Thailand. And isn't that the most wonderful world when we can get people to travel to the country that we love just because they experienced some food in America. So that for me is I don't consider that appropriation. And go back to the pupusa ex uh, example. I think that it is us who created food, who cheapen our food. It is not the ignorance of the audience that we're serving it to. Because why? I have helped one of my cook who used to work for me open her, um, her food business during pandemic. The first thing I asked her was, what, the th what, what are the things that the Mexican restaurant here don't normally do? She said pupusa and gorditas. And that's what I started her off. And her pupusa sold for $12 for two. Because I told her, I said, the audience would just going to accept the fact that the food cost is high, you do everything gluten-free, show them how you do your pupusa, they would appreciate that. And then later on, you can expand more about <clears throat> different kind of mole, different kind of thing that you have in your culture. But for now, bring them in, bring them in the fold, bring them into our culture by making things a lot less, um, and a lot more inclusive. You know, so I always have a major problem when some people say to me, oh, Indochine is not authentic Vietnamese, Indochine is not authentic Thai or not authentic sushi. I never claim to be authentic. I do claim, though, to make kick-ass food using the ingredient that I appreciate and I respect. So, um, so I think that of the younger people out there who own restaurants and, and you have these questions all the time about, you know, how authentic do I want my food to be? And, or maybe sometimes we get a little bit annoyed when people say to you like, oh my God, I love eating at P.F. Chang, they have wonderful Chinese food. <laughs> For me, I said, that's great. That's great that you love, that you are welcome, that you are opening your palate to another food that's something you don't eat normally before. And is it wonderful that now the, the tourism industry is booming in some Asian country because of the food that they happen to eat here? You know, that might not even be really authentic, but it piped the interest and piped the curiosity. And, and that's, I think at the end of the day, that's like the best thing that we could do to introduce people slowly to our culture and that teach them to appreciate um, our culture and our background, even by a half-ass authentic food. You mean you are kick-ass. This is why you're my favorite. I told you everybody, <laughs> just the thoughtfulness I think is, is so important. And you're such a, uh, motivated to inspire others, which is such a great segue. I'm so happy that Doris is up next because Doris has 
gotten some of the the Yumi energy into their business in the Meta Asian Kitchen, as well as Michelle Lamb, who's here, as well as Kim Lai. So this is a, a great crew we got here, Doris. So I want to come to you and uh, you know some some powerful uh, people uh, have supported you in your business. You've struggled with a lot of the things. We've worked on a lot of these. Uh, so tell everybody just a little bit about you and Ken, your guys' journey, and then your thoughts on the topic. Uh, hey, can you hear me? Hear me? Yeah, we hear you. Hey, everyone. Um, my name is Doris. Um, I am the owner of Meta Asian Kitchen out here in uh, Denver, Colorado. I opened this restaurant with my uh, husband, who's a who's been a chef in New York City for about 10 years. Um, so, you know, this topic is, I have mixed feelings about this topic, and it's um, a very interesting topic for sure. Um, for me, uh, we categorize our restaurant as casual family-style Chinese food. I'm always a little hesitant to claim that our food is authentic Chinese because, you know, Growing up here in America, you know, we, I, I've eaten a lot of different types of by our experience, inspired by what we eat. So, like, our menu is authentic in that way. It's authentic to us. Um, but also, uh, yeah, you know, uh, Jensen mentioned a little bit about us doing a um, Chinese New Year menu this year. Uh, it was it was pretty crazy. We, we sold a lot of food, which was really amazing. But, um, you know, during this whole process of planning this Chinese New Year menu, uh, we talked to my, my dad, who's a chef from Hong Kong. We talked to Ken's mom, who's a chef from Hong Kong. So, like, you know, when we do execute these Chinese dishes, we really try to, you know, bring in the authenticity. We don't just say, like, oh, yeah, this is some, you know, uh, you know, pork buns that we do that we put in a bao bun. There's an authentic uh, uh, bao. Like, we'll we'll never say something like that. In in this way, like, we don't want to appropriate our own. And here's my take on cultural appropriation when it comes to food. Like, I have no problem with people who is not Chinese or Asian cooking Asian food, but my biggest problem is like. You know, someone's like, oh, I lived in China for two years and I and I learned how to cook Chinese food from a Chinese grandmother, you know, or like, oh, yeah, I cooked in a fusion Asian restaurant and now I'm opening a a authentic Chinese restaurant like that. That to me doesn't make any sense. Like a few weeks ago, I ate a um, a cheeseburger fried rice and it pissed me off because I'm like, how can this restaurant claim to do authentic Chinese food and then serve a fried rice that tastes like a Big Mac. So here's my little two cents. And I'm done speaking. Thank you for that, Doris. Appreciate the insights there and how you guys navigate that and the family legacy being super important. I think it's something for myself being generational. A lot of people in the industry are generational, especially restaurants you know just to nicely let them know the food they're offering is not kosher um just to be shrugged off and told that I don't know what I'm talking about um so it's just uh interesting how often you know you do have restaurants or or people who try to um do something that you know try to make something that belongs to another not belongs to but um 
tries to make something from another culture that they don't study and they don't read into or look into or learn how to make it properly. Um, but that being said, I do think appreciation should not be, um, you know, forgotten because it is okay to appreciate uh, food and to make foods. And I know that L. Banks said this earlier. Um, anyone can learn to make a cuisine from any place in the world. And there's nothing wrong with appreciating and learning and studying. Um, but as long as you do the work as well, I'm done talking. Got to put in the work. It's one of the things that food people respect more than anything. It's a strength and a weakness. If we don't bleed out of our eyeballs, we don't respect it. We got some work to do on some life balance issues we deal with for sure. But uh, we appreciate effort above all others, it feels like. So thank you for that. And thanks again for inspiring that this room is going to happen on a regular basis and uh, making sure that important conversations happen. Susie Kim, I want to come to you next. Uh, give us a quick little intro and then tell us your thoughts. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Um, I uh, am a Denver, I guess I was there for 13 years and worked in many different aspects of the restaurant industry and had a food cart at one point doing Korean barbecue. Um, so regarding uh, the topic, um, I think my first exposure to um, something that I felt was cultural appropriation was the first time I saw a quote unquote Korean barbecue, um, Korean burger on a food truck. And when I stepped closer, cause I was excited, it was sriracha and hoisin sauce, which are not Korean. And so that was the first time that I felt like, like not happy about what I saw. And, and, you know, um, just, I guess, to your point of research, um, you know, they obviously didn't do any research and that made me very angry. Um, and I vowed to never eat at that food truck just because of that. Um, but, you know, that was uh, several years ago. And as you, I guess, experience more and you see more in the industry in general, um, you know, just the fact that they're trying is sort of a compliment. Um, and, depend and depending on your market, um, I think that I think that there's nothing wrong with actually capitalizing off of that and being an innovator and trying to introduce people into um, into your world. Um, I do also think and agree with the point of education in terms of being able to explain to people the process in which it takes to get to produce such food because, um, you know, a lot of ethnic food does take a lot more time and sourcing of, of ingredients and all the things that you guys talked about already. Um, but I also think that if you can drive demand in the market and be respected as that innovator, I think that speaks volumes. Um, I, I just, uh, I think that we do need to be compassionate towards the possibility of general ignorance of the audience. And if you can understand that about, about your market um, and just keep on doing you, it doesn't matter if you think you're, authentic, if you think um, you're a fusion, uh, if you just stand for what you believe in. And honestly, people don't really know what they're eating. So that kind of works in your favor too, as a menu innovator, right? You get to kind of experiment and see what works. And then also um, maybe do something to pay tribute to your culture. 
but um, I'm, not, I'm not saying like be a total sellout, but I think that's our opportunity um, as, as people on the front lines. That's all I got. Yeah, it's good. What you stand for. That's why you do what you do again. It's going to come up always, 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 I think in food. And I think with me is why, 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 why we do what we do is the compelling reason it drives everything. It's your anchor and your North star. So yeah, what you stand for versus what you put on the plate. Appreciate that. All right. Ed, we're going to go for about another level 11 minutes. Um, so Alyssa, I want to make sure a couple of people who wanted to speak may not get to speak. And I want to make sure then if we get them in next week that they do, if you could just take a screenshot to make sure that we capture those people. Cause I want to acknowledge everybody who wants to speak, who's willing to listen. Thanks to everybody for listening. See a lot of familiar and new faces, really grateful. The only way that we evolve as food cultures, as food people, as professionals, as a country is bringing more voices to the table. And so that is a fundamental mission of what we do. So, uh, and, if I pronounce it incorrectly, I apologize. Uh, Sheenon, if I can come to you next and uh, please correct me and then uh, introduce yourself and give us your thoughts. Oh, thanks very much. Uh, it's, uh, it's actually Shenan. Um, and um, this is a really fascinating uh, discussion. So thanks, thanks so much for, for doing this. Um, uh, I'm particularly interested just because I think um, food is such an interesting lens into everything, whether it's family, culture, colonization, migration patterns. So I just think it's a bottomless subject. But I did want to piggyback on what the wonderful Yumi was saying um, in that um, as someone who, who grew up with, um, within a South Asian family and grew up with Indian food, um, but who uh, had um, uh, had several generations living in Africa before we moved to um, to Canada? Um, I've always been a little bit agnostic about the whole idea of appropriation, um, and my main hesitation, I think, is that um, often we're fretting about something being appropriated when it in it, it it in itself is appropriation if you go back and look or if you go back enough in enough uh enough years or centuries you know i um i think if you look at the history of food like so much of it is about cross-pollinization and trade routes and migration patterns and i mean how how far do you want to go back in terms of proving the metal of your authenticity? I mean, if you can go back to your father's generation or your grandfather or your even your great grandfather, but that's still in my mind, in terms of the way I look at it, like a penny drop in history. Um, and an example I always think of um, having sort of read about this a bit is how, um, growing up with Indian curries, North Indian curries specifically, um, tomatoes uh, are, you know, such a big part of the base of, of um, those curries. But tomatoes themselves were brought by Portuguese explorers to the subcontinent in like the 16th century, which, you know, in the span of India itself, isn't that, isn't that long ago. And uh, another example is like there's um, 
a kind of ice cream type dessert called kulfi in um, that you often get at Indian restaurants. But that was sort of brought, um, the term itself or originates in the Persian language and was reportedly brought to India by Mughal uh, by the Mughal Empire. Um, and there's so many different examples of this. I was reading something um, a few weeks ago about Sicilian cuisine and how uh, the Arabs brought things like lemons and artichoke and cinnamon and so many other things that we think as being authentically, you know, South Italian or or Sicilian. Um, so I don't know. I, I guess that's that's just sort of my larger pulling back view view on all of this stuff. Um, to a large extent, I think it does come down to like intent. I think like appreciation of stuff is great. I think our goal should be expansive and to zoom out. Um, and I, I guess it does get tricky when people try to take ownership of something and that's not particularly palatable. Um, but in general, I think like all food is kind of fusion when you when you actually look back at history. And those were my thoughts. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the the, the big anthropological view of it because I think that's super important. There's two things that you've said that that always resonate with me is intent. Your intent absolutely matters. You need to stay focused on what that intent is and be pure in that intent. And if you communicate that, then people know exactly what they're getting themselves into, what they're getting out of it, what the value exchange of that actually is in a business. So I appreciate that. And ownership, like who does get to own it? Nobody gets to own it. We're just contributors. And I think the ability to look at us as such as stewards of it helps that. So I appreciate that. Michelle Lamb, I want to come to you next. Give yourself an introduction and then uh, and thoughts. Hi, everyone. Thank you for that. Um, everyone, I am Michelle and I am based in New York City. I grew up in a Chinese small business restaurant, hospitality, and I'm currently doing social media and public relation for restaurants, specifically small business, because during this pandemic, they need more marketing than anyone else, in my opinion. And a lot of them have already closed down and I'm just trying to help them um, survive the next few months until they get more funding. But um, just to add on to what uh, Shinan said, I do think that a lot of different types of cuisines from different ethnicities and countries, they, I can see them being um, fusion because for example, noodles, pasta. Some, some countries say, you know, it's from, you know, Italy. You know, some people say it's from China or where's the, you know, uh, origin of where the noodles or, you know, pasta, which one came first? Like nobody's gonna know, it's like chicken or egg, right? And I think it comes down to really on education. Um, a lot of people don't seem to dig deeper into what each cuisine originated from or why the spices that certain regions, for example, China uses to prepare each dish. And I think that a lot of people claim to own certain type of cuisine, especially in New York City, I were enough to best represent them. So they would go to other countries and hire, you know, Michelin star type of uh, chefs from 
these big hotels in the tourism space. So I think it's about education too. Like everyone who has ownership of their type of cuisine and food from their country uh, brought into America, specifically New York City, I think it's time for them to really step up and really talk about uh, why uh, these type of ingredients are used in every single uh, popular dish that we we see on you know TV or we see on we see in, on menus and social media. So I, I think it's really about like education from everyone's standpoint. Thank you for that, Michelle. Appreciate that. Uh, I and I think it's about platforms too. I hear this coming up again and again. The extension of this is like who is allowed to speak on what. And the gatekeepers have historically not spoken for most people. And so I think democratizing the process of being able to share stories is something I'm so, so driven by. Like, just because you're a line cook who works at a tiny little restaurant for the last seven years in Delaware does not mean that your opinion is less valid than mine. I don't know that person in Delaware, like completely made up, but there's, there's 11 million people in this industry who, whose struggles and joy should be a part of our story, cumulatively or individually. And so, you know, creating more platforms, that's literally what Best Served was built on, to share the stories of unsung hospitality heroes, because that's everybody that's willing to commit themselves to feed their communities. So I appreciate that. I want to, last couple minutes here, and I apologize, Vinesh Douglas, we will get you in next time because we're going to wrap this. Uh, so I want to start with you guys, if you're available next Sunday, for sure to, to share and, and, and be a part of this community that's clearly so thoughtful and a lot of uh, uh, leaders here that are driving the conversation. Jen, want to finish with you. You get the microphone last. Uh, give us an introduction and uh, your thoughts on the topic. Thank you, Jensen. Thank you, Michelle, for bringing me into the room. I'm Jen and I can't say I have a food background. I'm a food consumer. <laughs> My uh, business is in skincare. However, um, I grew up basically in the kitchen alongside my dad cooking all the time. I've always enjoyed it. Um, but I raised my hand uh, to ask Miggy a question. But before I go into that, um, just in terms of the thoughts on appropriation and appreciation, um, I totally agree with what Yumi was saying in terms of two different um, foods, there is a nice medium of fusion that can happen and done well. Um, just like what you guys are saying, as long as there's a level of intention and research and knowledge and education put into it, you can absolutely do. I'm in the Bay Area, so we are lucky to have a lot of restaurants who have done fusion very well. And I um, believe that it gives an opportunity for the two types of foods um, for an, an awareness, like to the general public. So a lot of people um, may not have been exposed to any Thai food or uh, Sichuan food, whatever, but then there's restaurants who are doing these fusions well with something more popular and they've brought that in. Um, I totally understand Susie's perspective of going to one of those restaurants and you're like, this is not even anything. <laughs> I don't get pissed off, but I, do, I will say, I just won't go there. It's like, oh my gosh, this is so disgusting. But <laughs> I wanted to say, this is crazy. Miggy and I actually live in the same area. We, I used to be neighbors with her. So we go back to almost 20 years. And I've gone along with, I've seen her in her food journey. And it is incredible. Um, I love Miggy, what you're doing 
what you've done, um, being sommelier, especially to Chinese cuisine, that's totally been missed. Um, and my question was, Mickey, ni hao, ni hao. <laughs> um, Hi, I can't your, believe you're here. I know, Mickey, I love it. I, your cookbook, I know, is beautiful. And I've always wondered, has that been translated into English yet? <laughs> Recipe is in Chinese and English both, but the writing, the story about Kacho Par is in Chinese. I should do the job to translate into English. I would do it. You know, I've been asking you, I'm like, from the get-go when you're publishing, I'm like, is this going to be in English? Because I would love to read it, see it, cook it, all of the above. But it's not just the recipes, right? It's all the information and the history that you give behind it that makes it so, like, amazing. So... (laughs) Yeah, all the food. I think all the food, like I when I travel and I have that, I always go deep to uh, study about um, to study about like the regular people, what they serve and what their culture. And a lot of because you are curious and then you will ask questions and they will help happy to share what their experience. And also there's a lot of like family, you know, the, the recipe um transfer like um, generation to generation and also i think the molly sauce from spanish uh, from mexico that was one of my fascinating uh thing that i learned like in even the the new current generation they don't make the molly sauce and the molly sauce was like amazing but and and somebody said their grandma can make it i would say can you um, introduce me to your grandma and I can write down her recipe. And I'm very happy if anybody interested to show me your family um, recipe and I would want to you know, dig in and then write down the recipe to that the culture going on and on. And also I would love to share anybody who is into uh, Chinese food and want to know wine pairing. I'm happy to contribute what I can do. And you can contact me from the uh, Instagram. And thank you for my neighbor, Jen. <laughs> I don't I know if I have answered your question. Yes, thank you. As long as you know, like an English version would be amazing. I, um, It's funny that you mentioned, like, can I talk to your grandmother and get the mole recipe? Because I'm... So I, I posted actually on Instagram not too long ago a zajangmian that I made. However... My dad, growing up, made an incredible, um, amazing zajangmian, and I didn't know to get the recipes. Of course, he passed away, so I I know how. If you can get even just to hear them say it, and then have an idea that it's it really builds into that authenticity of the the food. Um, I'm Jen, and I'm done speaking. Thank. What a great way to end. I just believe that. The more time you spend eating and drinking, commiserating with others, the world gets so much smaller and so much bigger at the same time. The depth of understanding of culture, of food, of people, food connects us like nothing else. It's the, it is the universal language. And all of a sudden the world becomes small. We, we start to know each other better, you know, and I, I appreciate that. What a great way to kind of wrap this. Uh, and again, as mentioned, we're going to be on every Sunday at uh, 2 p.m. Eastern, hour, hour and a half, 
We'll go from these very thoughtful, personal, deep conversations to some that might be a little bit more light and fun. Once again, foods I want to like next week, we're going to talk about a little bit things that we know are delicious, know are good, know lots of people we respect are super into and just cannot get behind them. And a lot of these for me are things that, uh, you know, grew up with culturally and uh, didn't have the respect for, didn't have the understanding for, was uh, looking for this more Americanized experience. And now... You know, I spent a lot of time and effort trying to celebrate those foods, except for natto. Natto is one that I just still cannot do. I apologize to my obachan. I just could never get behind it. So uh, that is it, I think, for this week. Alyssa, anything else we need to uh, touch on before we uh, before we let everyone go? Yeah, I think you pretty much covered it. But um, before we close out, I would like to see if anybody has any final thoughts or questions for anyone that had spoken or any thoughts on the matter. I I would like to um and obviously I think this is a, a discussion for a future conversation, but it's something that I've definitely um pondered on is the idea, you know, behind authentic, right? I think that's a conversation that's really important. I think it was Shinan who or Shinan, I'm sorry if I'm butchering your name, um, who talked about um just a little bit more in depth into the origins of ingredients and things like that. But I think that term and how the term authentic is, is perceived and used would be a great conversation to have in the future. Um, just in regards to food. I agree. Definitely a hundred percent. Let's see. Anybody else? Hi, I just wanted to briefly chime in, actually. I've been listening to the wonderful conversation that, you know, you guys have been um, discussing about cultural appropriation of food. And I am not a chef, but I do um, cook a lot of Caribbean foods, specifically foods from Dominica. And what I have recently done is just to make sure that um, the culture survives or the food culture um, on the island is to kind of write down all the recipes and share them with anyone who's willing to, you know, to um, go through my blog and and want to connect with um, the Dominican culture. I also bring in a historical perspective to it. And I know that, I know Xi'an mentioned about um, ownership. And I think that, you know, um, even looking from the historical perspective where food has definitely evolved in the Caribbean, we have influences of Africa, um, Asia, I mean, in China and India and um, other areas around the world, you realize that the movement of people influences culinary culture and helps define the history. So our history in the Caribbean is embedded in, um, you know, the, the transatlantic move order, the movement of people coming in from Asia and certainly um, an African influencing the foods that we eat. Anyway, I just wanted to make that note. And of course, it's really hard to put claim on you know, like curry, you know, we have a lot of curries or different foods on the islands um, within the Caribbean islands. You know, Jamaica might want to claim some of it and then Trinidad and Guyana. So you have that competitive um, spirit going on around those islands. But I think what we're trying to do is just, you know, be very um, appreciative of everyone's take on what perhaps a curry goat would look like. It may not be the same in every different country, but certainly um, if we can all live harmoniously and, you know, through this food ecosystem, I think it will be 
great that we can all share recipes and learn and uh, appreciate each other's, each, each other's cultures. Yeah, thanks for that. All right, everybody, we're going to wrap this. Uh, this did bring up, though, uh, more topics. You, If you guys follow what we do with Best Served, you know that we're on uh, four days a week doing a lot of different types of topics. We're always looking for more input there. So please, I mean, reach out to Best Server. Reach out to me directly uh, if you want to have topics for Clubhouse, topics for audio podcasts, topics for video, articles. Several people in here are writing articles for what we're doing. We are working really hard sophie breaker corey nelson are here they're working really hard to make sure that as many voices as possible get the opportunity to be sh shared so that's what we're really all about and that's what this platform is about and so I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak with everybody today to hear your stories to be more motivated inspired to amplify the worth and work of people who feed their communities and that is it you guys have a great rest of your sunday cheers thanks for listening to the best served podcast Subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes.